Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is Are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you a, an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate's episode number 42. Today, I'm so pleased to have John Peterson at Taylor Chess of the Peterson Companies. John is the CEO and been leading the firm now for two years, succeeding his father, Milt, who started the company back in the early 1970s. So the company's over 50 years old now. Taylor Chess is the president of development there and a longtime friend of mine through ICSC, which we talk about. This conversation is wide-ranging, where we talk about the Peterson company culture, how John and Taylor grew up together, some of the antics that Milt Peterson did when John was young and they're traveling around the market, some classic quotes, some interesting side stories, and so much more. It's a lot of fun to listen to this one. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you again for listening. So without further ado, here is John Peterson and Taylor Chess. So welcome, gentlemen, to the Icons of DC Area Real Estate Podcast. Thank you, John and Taylor, for joining me today. So maybe, John, if you'd start, could you give us your role at the Peterson Companies and uh, your, your focus day to day? And then, Taylor, if you would do the same. Well, today, my role is as CEO, and that started about maybe two and a half years ago. And it's it's really kind of making sure that you know, with, we've got many different departments here and a lot of different things that we're doing. So it's just making sure that everyone is kind of going and abiding by the strategic plan. A couple of years ago, we put together a strategic plan and decided the things we will and we won't do, you know, and there we've put together very specifics of, of what the returns we're looking for and what, what type of product we're going to be concentrating on and what we don't want to do. So it's really kind of just making sure that the rails are, the trains are staying on the tracks and that we're not 
diverging off and doing something that is different than what we all, you know, have a, as a consensus, know which way we're going. We're all rolling in the same direction at the same time. And so I just kind of poke my head in here and there, make sure, you know, everything's uh, going great because we've got some great people who are very capable uh, of doing their jobs. You know, the, the, the divisions of each of the, the presence of each of the divisions. Taylor runs our acquisitions and, and sales and development. We've got Bill Smith, who runs kind of the commercial slash office. He's been with us heck, almost 30, 25 years. Paul Weinchek is president of the retail division, and he's been with us, went away for a little bit, decided that wasn't so bad here back at Peterson Company, so he came back. And then we have Stuart Prince, who is heading up our multifamily kind of residential division. So all those combined, we have a lot, as we say, on our shelf that, that's happening right now. And it's just to make sure that we've, we've got all of the different product types moving through the pipeline with cash needs and financing and all that. It's it's kind of, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. And it's it takes a lot of, a lot of help from others to, to, to make it all happen. It really is teamwork. And the, the one thing is it's, we, we all really have to communicate because some of the projects require some overlap of different, of different product types. And so if their communication really is the key we're not just building one thing. We're not just building office or not. We're sure. not just building retail. When you're, yeah. when you're doing a multiple of things, it takes a total different level of kind of organization. So we'll, we'll dive into a lot of the details here in a few minutes. Taylor, if you would enhance what you, what John just said about what you're doing. Yeah. Bit. Thanks, John. And thanks for doing this with us today. So my role is president of acquisitions, dispositions, and development. Uh, really, it's development. And as John said, we've got a lot of different divisions that, that we work through. But you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's keeping, keeping projects that are in the development process moving forward. It's looking for new opportunities. It's looking at what are those newer projects that we want to be doing. And John said his, his role is to, to keep the trains on the track and I think he probably has to spend the most time in my office trying to get the train back on the track. I, <laughs> I, I get I move around a lot. He likes to be in the train yard where you can go. You Understood. Can get off on a bunch of different, you know, that bunch of different tracks. I like him out in the in the middle of the, the country where he's got no place to diverge, no no place to go. All right. Now I want to turn back the clock a bit for you guys. I want to start with you, Taylor. Actually, you you grew up in Northern Virginia, right? I did. Yeah. Fairfax. So tell me about your family life a little bit growing up. So grew up in Fairfax when it was a sleepy town. I actually grew up on a farm for for the first seven years. Moved uh, into a neighborhood called Breckenridge when I was seven or eight years old. And that's actually where I met John. My dad was an attorney in Fairfax, had a couple of businesses on the side, did the first indoor tennis facilities in Northern Virginia back in 69. So, saw so a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit through that. Parents got divorced while I was young. And I was so, you know, kind of John and the Peterson family became a second family to me or, you know, a primary family in, you know, my formative years. Really? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, Taylor and I have known each other since we were kids, you know, and there's nothing better than the two of us being able to sit here and, and talk about, you know, our lives together, both, you know, personally and professionally. And, and it's awesome. Uh, it, I can't tell you how proud we are. We all, we kind of, 
just I don't know of anyone else who has who has, who has that. And, and we definitely appreciate that when we sit here and we talk. Sometimes it's hard because you know you get the you got the friendship hat and then you got the you know and you got the, the business hat and sometimes it's it's tough to have those those tough conversations but we managed to get through it because we know that friendship will, will will always be there. Taylor shared a picture of the two of you guys when you were little playing on a, a dirt hill apparently in Tyson's corner on one of your dad's projects. That is that, that site is now the headquarters for the department uh, for the National Counterterrorist Center in Tyson's. It was originally the PRC building, and that's where that that, that was the original headquarters building for the for the PRC building. And that's a build, so, that's a that's a site where when Taylor and I were 16, 17, we had our own tree planting business. Really? And that's kind of where, let's say, our entrepreneurial spirit came from. You know, when we were 16 or 17 in high school, we had a, a tree planting business. And we, it was great because we had, we had a tree spade that, they were, that we were using from Burke Center. And we had trees that were there <laughs> in Tyson's Corner. And so we had all of our overhead was, was paid for. And so we'd plant the trees and take home all the cash every day. But we were up at six o'clock in the morning. And anyways, it was, there were great times. And it was, it really did. That was the beginning of, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit for, for, for he and I. So tell me what it was like to grow up as Milt Peterson's son. <laughs> and, and well, I, I think I made it was an easy decision early on is that I was, I was never going to be another Mel Peterson. They broke that mold. And so once I was, you know, I, I said that early on because, you know, they only, they only make one milk, but you know, milk has always been there as a great father for, for the family. He worked his tail off in the, in, in his early days. I remember many a day we would just sit and wait for his car lights to come home. And it was, he was, he was always expecting a lot of us, but it was really it was really fair. He, you know, the, he let the little things go by, but when when you really got out of line, you know, that's when he 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 let you know. So he was he was fair, but you know, once entering into the company, he kind of you know that's it was that was the great thing about having Jim Todd around is Jim Todd was really able to help me kind of like be a mentor or a leader I could look up to as well because Milt was there off doing his thing. And you know, Jim was like a tiger with between Till and between Till and Milt, there were two tigers and there's Jim Todd trying to hold on to their tail. <laughs> and so for the first several years, it was definitely just an observer. I worked with David Cheek and Ray and Joe Ritchie. And the leasing side. So I got out of school and they said, you know, Joe, Joe and Dave go help teach John the leasing business. And that's where it started. Eventually I ended up, you know, in charge of all of the commercial for the company and got into the mixed use development. And it just, sure. at, at right. over the years, you just absorb yep. so much. And so Mill was off doing his thing, big 30,000 30, elevation. And I was, you know, kind of down working, so, getting, just getting experience and was available and saw, I was just, I was, I was a sponge, as much as I could to be was a sponge right? and right. took as much as I could in and now I'm applying it. You followed your foot, your dad's footsteps to Middlebury College. Why I did. did you decide, why'd you decide to go there out of curiosity? Well, I actually had a couple 
scholarship offers and for football. And I wanted to play both football and lacrosse. And mom and dad went there and my older brother was already there. <laughs> and so I could go there and someone, a friend of the family went to play at UVA and division one. And he said to me, he said, John, don't go division one. You're a number. You're just, you're just another one in the pecking order. Go someplace where you can play. And so I, I played football and lacrosse and never had any regrets. It was, it was great. The academics were definitely challenging. I, I was never the best student, let's just say. But I, I knew when I left Middlebury that I was not going to go on and, and seek a higher, any higher education. How early did you know that you were going to work for your dad? You know, we never really talked about it, to be honest. Okay. It was, it just kind of happened. He never asked and I never offered. And, you know, school ended and we, we, there was a brief discussion with Jim Todd. I went in and said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in coming. And, you know, is there an opportunity? And he said, absolutely. It was, it was, it was as simple as that. And he said, you know, the beginning work's not going to be easy. And I said, I, I don't expect it to be. So, you know, it was, it's being a family member, you know, at the beginning, everyone is definitely, I, I knew all eyes were on me, put it that way. Sure. And so that actually kept me, kept me, you know, on the, on the, on the right line because, you know, I didn't want to disappoint Milt and I wanted to, you know, prove that I was, you know, capable of contributing to the company, even at, an, even at the beginning. That's great. Taylor, I, Understand you went to California to college. What what took you out there? Well, my my uh, parents had gotten divorced, as as I mentioned, and Dad moved out to California to be with his family. Trips out there, I loved California. It was beautiful. Had an opportunity to go to Whittier College or Hampton City, and Mrs. Peterson said, "If you go to California, you'll lose all your East Coast friends." So I went to Hampton City. I lasted a semester. It was a five-hour drive, four-and-a-half-hour drive down to uh, oh, Arnold, or it was a five-hour flight out to California. I did the I did the drive once, so I was like, hey, I can do the flight just as easily as I can do the, the drive. So I went out, went to, uh, I, was, I was out, I was in California. I, I went to, I'd been accepted at Whittier College. So I called and I said, hey, am I still accepted? And he said, well, we're starting lacrosse practice tomorrow. Why don't you come to the lacrosse field and we'll tell you if you're accepted or not. So they, uh, they were starting a lacrosse program out there. And so John and I played lacrosse at St. Stephen's. Sure. That, was how I, that was how I got there. It was, I call it my five-year summer vacation because the weather was absolutely gorgeous. I uh, got to learn a lot about the, the state. I tried a couple of different schools and ended up at Cal State Northridge. And I uh, was... That was the little bit of the California experience. I understand you also went into at least dabbled a little bit into acting for a little while. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, that was that was fun. I had a roommate who was a pro beach volleyball player, and they were all all the all the volleyball guys were extras. So he said, "You know, you really got to you need you need to try this." I mean, it's, it's easy. You got the right look. And it was back when you had beepers. Yeah, you didn't have cell phones, but you had beepers. Yeah. So we'd be down on the beach and uh beeper would go off and an agent would be calling and we'd get to, to go audition or you know, participate in some movies. So that was it was a good time. It it was actually during the strike. The so really got a lot of opportunity. 
where if I had entered at any other time, I probably wouldn't have gotten that much opportunity. What entertainment strike or what was going on? It was a screen actors you know, strike. Ah, okay. Um, uh-huh. So it was it was really interesting to just to work on sets, and it it gives you in the even in the movie industry when you're inside it you see where the power really lies it's a lot like real estate you know on the outside you've got the leasing agents you've got the faces but where's the work really done right i mean it's in it's in zonings it's in construction it's in management and those are sometimes the unsung hero when you look at the the movie industry i there was on set i just on Falcon Crest. Think about the guys you had on Falcon Crest. Charlton Heston, Ricardo Montalbán, uh, Jane Wyman. Wow. Tony Lamas and, and, and others. You and, worked with these, these people? Yeah. Yeah. So we'd sit on set, play cards. And uh, you realize that, that in that setting, these are just regular people. Whereas if you see them on the street, they're these icons, right? Of course. Um, yeah. So it was really, it was, it was really neat to see, Kind of that you know, it all depends on what role you're in and, and how people look at sure. you. And, and where does the power really yield? The power power yields from the money. It re- yields from the from the producers. And then That's and then you've got cool. the choreographs, choreographers of the you know, the directors so. What brought you back to, to Northern Virginia then after um, that? California weather was too good. I wanted to be outside all the time. So I had a lot of jobs out there that were all outside jobs. And I knew if I wanted to do anything in life, I needed to work inside. So Virginia <laughs> had the had the weather that made you have to work inside at least at least six months out of the year. So had uh, a couple of interviews set up, one with Skip Galt at the Peterson Companies, Miller and Smith, and I forget who else. Like so why, why real estate? I mean, why, why did you, I mean, you were in acting. I mean, the transition from one to the other is an interesting thought. Um, real estate happen? was always in in my mind. Every summer, I did construction work. I worked for William okay. and Hazel. I worked for Peterson Companies on Madison McLean. So it was always there. When Dad was in California, he also got into a little development, primarily house building. Mm-hmm. But the land and creation. Are, are two things that I really enjoy. And so I always felt as though I was going to go into real estate. And that's, you know, when you're exposed to it, having grown up with the Petersons, you know, you, it's kind of all we would talk about. There's nothing better than, you know, John and I going cruising around with milk on a Saturday, going to job sites or talking about, you know, his vision for Burke Center or Franklin Farms. When you mm-hmm. when you sit there and have somebody describe what they see when you're looking at a bunch of trees, yep. it was it was fascinating. And and yeah. you know, learning at a young age the the importance of transportation. We were in high school when or college when the Springfield Bypass, which is now the Fairfax County Parkway, was sure. being fought and and approved, and milk until. Were instrumental in getting that approved because they realized transportation was such a big component of how Fairfax would be able to develop over the years. You know, interesting fact on that is 
there was a zoning we were doing in Burke Center. And the at time, the supervisor for that district said, we will approve this site if you take the dedication of the county parkway off of your property. And Milt wouldn't do it and until. And today, if you put together all the properties that we developed along the county parkway, we dedicated 12 miles of land towards the Fairfax County Parkway. That's how strongly we felt about it that we said, okay, we didn't, we didn't make, we didn't have to make them condemn it or anything. We just, we just granted the easements uh, because we, Milt and Till knew how important transportation was going to be for the growth of Northern Virginia. They were early on knew that the growth was coming and that the county better be ready. And Milton Till will always tell you, you know, they took more. We wouldn't have this traffic if that we have today if the people in Fairfax County, the planners, didn't take the roads that were on the that were already on the long-term map. They took them off of the map. If they hadn't take, we our road system would be much better than it is today, let's say. But that wasn't that wasn't the case. They took many roads off of the, the long term, you know, 30 year plan. Map. Yeah, there was so a lot of fighting back then when when these roads were being created and the Board of Supervisors thought that you would stop growth by not building roads. So there was a, a big road, Monticello Parkway, Monticello Parkway, Monticello Parkway, which was would have alleviated a lot of traffic through the Springfield uh, area. So, John, while you're talking about Milt and Till, talk a little bit about kind of how they came together. And also, maybe even further back, when your dad was working for Steve Jonas and, and his origins in the business a little well, bit. Well, you know, to understand Milt, you got to go back to his, the true entrepreneurial spirit that lives in him. It started with his father. His father bought houses and lived in them while they renovated them. So Milt learned how to be a plumber, an electrician, and all really? that working for his father in the houses that they renovated. After he graduated from college, he was was stationed at Fort Belvoir. And so while he was here, he said, you know, he noticed that this, this was going to be a, a growth area. So he went and started working for Jonas Companies, which was mm-hmm. selling houses at the time. Right. And so he said, you know, I want to be selling some houses. But he, the part I missed was when he was in college, he would hire some people and he would have them stationed outside of the exams in the spring. And when people would come outside the exams, he would offer them a dollar, let's just say, for a book. And then he would come back in the fall before that semester started and he would sell that book for ten dollars and the school got really upset with him (laughs) college and they threatened to kick him out unless he stopped selling his his books on the streets to to the students because they were highlighted in yellow and underlined and all that stuff and the kids loved those and so he was they told him that if he continued to do that that he would no longer be welcome at, at Middlebury College. So that's where his entrepreneurial spirit really started. Does you he know, tell making, that story? Does he tell that story? Person, tells it all. Yeah, he, he enjoys that one. 
I can imagine the students laughing uproariously. He's, he's you know, we've always referred to him as the junk man. He, he can turn a piece of junk into, you know, into a shiny piece of metal. And that's, that's kind of been what the company's been all about over, over the years. But he started selling houses and was in, within his first year, was the top salesman. And he goes, no, this isn't challenging enough for me. So I'm going to go build my own townhouses. So he really started with some townhouses in Vienna, and then he did some in the city of Fairfax. And through that, I guess he got to know Till, and he said, all right, you can get the zoning, and I can put together the deal structure. I can go buy the land, because he's a good, let's say, you know, he's, he's a pretty good negotiator, right? Yeah, I'd so say. He was able to go buy the land. Till was, in the meantime, responsible for entitlements. So whether it was the Burke Centers or the Franklin Farms, it really started by the two of them. We started it, we started as a community development company. If you think mm-hmm. about it, yes. Burke Center was thousands of homes with it's a it was a mixed use community community. It was just mm-hmm. bigger. Yeah. It had churches, it had schools, it had racket clubs, it had everything a community wanted. It was pretty much self-contained. So it was a really early version of a, of a mixed-use development. And so we started as the residential. And in those communities, we built the, the, the retail and we right. retained it. And we built some office buildings and we retained it. And over the years, we really never sold anything. We were really after controlling and building a portfolio, which started with the buildings in, in Burke Center and, and sure. Franklin Farm and then all of a sudden, it was like the big one that put us that put us on the map. Fair was Lakes. Fair Lakes. Yeah. But we opened our first building here in 1986. That's I remember. Like, I, when we opened the office here was my first day of work here. But Milt started assembling that land back in the 70s here, and so it was that was that was the beginning of getting into a totally different, let's call it product type, and the so, office. You got into you got into retail before that with a fellow by the name of Skip Costin, as I recall. And so, talk about that relationship with uh, Milton Skip. Well, Skip was really the first. Let's say you could call him the president because he was he kept everything in order. You know, Milt and until really it was really relied on Skip to be kind of controller, let's say, of the company. And mm-hmm. he he provided so much stability and the trust level, it, it was all about trust. Milt and Till just looked to him and said, okay, can we do this? What should we do? And so the three of them really together and with Giuseppe Checky was our partner in Burke Center. So there's we don't use, we don't like a whole lot of partners, but we when we choose them, we kind of choose the right ones. And Giuseppe was one of our early on partners with us and we've had a great relationship with him since the since the 70s. And now his kids are in the business and we we're kind of cohorts and we're and peers. So it's it, it was really interesting to kind of grow up and now you know to, to be doing business with Giuseppe's kids, John mm-hmm. and and Enrico and those guys. So anyways it was it, there were great times but Skip Costume was definitely at, at the the forefront being the the organizer of the at the time was was Hazel Peterson Companies. So Taylor, did did you work with with Skip early on when you first started? Was yeah, that? yeah, that was actually when I when I started with the company it was in the retail department. 
That's right. Um, That's what I thought. So this was retail was not necessarily the highbrow development that was going on in the 80s. It was the office. Office was really the, the, the shiny nickel that everybody wanted to do. Retail was a, a little bit of an afterthought. And so worked with Skip Costin and Skip Galt, Richard Doyle, and actually John's wife, Ann, in a, we had a satellite office. That was kind of the retail and cross point office. So it was neat because we, we really got to work on the projects at, and I, I got to work on projects at a, at a young age, at, a, at an immature part of my career where we worked on you know, the land acquisition, the, the zoning, the entitlement, and the building because they were smaller, they were smaller bite-sized pieces. In the retail side. So was your focus on development initially or was it more on leasing? Because my sense was you were more of a leasing guy at that time, weren't you initially? Yeah, I was I was really fortunate. I started out in the field. I started out <coughs> as an assistant uh, project manager on the construction side or mm-hmm. project management. We had uh, the group CMI, Commercial Management Inc., would manage the projects. AD Management would lease the projects. So as a as it developed into a project manager, work with the management company and the leasing company and it attended improvement work and did ultimately switch into a leasing role. And we took leasing of, of our retail in-house. We also took our property management in-house. So we started a property management division. So again, I had the, I had the luck of being able to be in all of these different departments and start these, you know, help start these divisions within the company. They really learned a wide array of the development process. So the 1980s was primarily, as you said, Taylor, office buildings in Northern Virginia, and you guys were cutting edge, certainly west of Tyson's Corner. You and maybe two or three other developers were pretty active out west of Tyson's and in Fairfax. And then we hit 1990 and 91, and things got a little difficult. Talk about those times and how the company thought through that process during those difficult, challenging years. The the one thing, you know, John and I got into the business in 87. And the good news was we were very low paid. So when 91 came around... We were the only ones left because that because because we were we were low paid. They were tough years, right? I and mean, we stay alive till ninety five. Yeah, it was yep. definitely it was. We were in, in a survival mode, and luckily we had some. We had developed some office buildings here in Fair Lakes, and they were were pretty fully leased. You know, we were the new shiny nickel, as Taylor said, out here in this part of the market. We were really the only new product at the time. We were selling birds and bunnies, as 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 Joe Ritchie would say. And you know, today no one likes the birds and the bunnies. They like the burger joints and the beer joints. So it's, but you know, Fairlakes is in the middle of transforming. But it was that was that was the project that really put us on the map. It was because it was it was five hundred acres of shiny shiny nickels office. It was the first power center built in the Washington region. Right. It had. TRW as a major tenant. We had apartments. We had townhouses. It was thought of as kind of like the ideal development. And it still has the basic roots of that, mainly because it's located in such a great part of the county. Most people 
they don't really look at a map, but Fair Lakes is is what it is because all the major roads basically connect within two miles of here. Between mm-hmm. 66, the County Parkway, Route 50, 29, West Ox Road, 123, they're all within two miles of here. So that's why this was called the Fairfax Center area. That's why the, the county chose to put their their the government office building here uh, because sure. it's geographically in the center and this is where all the roads converge. So yeah. that was part, if you really look at our strategy over the years, we really pushed kind of out 66. We started, we had landed at Vienna Metro, yep. we did Fair Lakes, we did in Centerville, and we did in Gainesville. And that was really our, our big concentration in Virginia for many years was was the 66 corridor. It was interesting. Sometimes the best deals you do are the deals you don't do. And I don't know if you remember, but we had a project out in Manassas called Williams Center, where we were going to build a mall. With the Barlow. Barlow out in Manassas next to the battlefield. And oh, uh, that. yes. Right? And yes. so that project. That was a um, controversial deal. <laughs> very controversial. And uh, to the point where the federal government had to condemn the land. That's, I remember that. So as I say, some of the deal, best deals you do are the ones you don't do. That you know, that condemnation gave us a lot of cash. And that was at an opportune time in the early 90s yes. when the RTC was taking back properties. So we were able to parlay the Williams Center project, the, what we got off of that, into probably 30 different projects buying, you know, distressed property out of the RTC. As John said, we always say Milt's a, Milt's a trash man. You know, other, you know, other people's junk is his gold. That was really what, what we did. We took a lot of projects that had a lot of hair on them that others couldn't figure out and figured out a, a plan or a way to, to develop them. Yeah, there was a pool of assets that I think had 22 assets in it. And we, there was probably, we went, there was five that we really wanted, but we had to buy the other 15 to get to those five. And, and I think Wachovia was the bank and Milt had a great relationship with them, went down to Atlanta, cut a deal to buy this portfolio. It had office of crummy office building in Roanoke. It had Townhouses down in Virginia Beach. It had land out in Leesburg that is that now has the Leesburg. What's the the, the, the retail there, right where the power lines are at Southern? Oh, Leesburg Town. So the uh, the Wegmans, the Wegmans Center out there. I won't say the name. There was a bank who had a loan on that property for twenty eight million dollars, and we bought it for seven hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, there was, you know, a lot of, op- we, we saw a lot of opportunity in that, in that time. And so well, when prices are so depressed, we bought another office building for $22 a square foot over here in Fairfax Center for $22 a foot and opportunity. Let me go back a few, back to more of the difficult times, because actually before that, in 1987, I closed my only large transaction with your company for the high construction or permanent financing for the Hyatt Plaza office building, which was a very unique deal in that we brought a lender named Aetna to the table. 
Aetna was happened to also be the 120,000 square foot lead tenant for the property. And <laughs> incidentally, they were the joint venture partner that you had at the same time. So we I remember it well. So I negotiated that deal with Emery Peters, God rest his soul, who was your former CFO at that time and finance fellow. And we worked through it and Milt looked at me at the closing table. He said, this, John, this is the largest deal I've ever closed. I said, wow, congratulations, Milt. This is great. You know, he felt really in the, in the catbird seat because we had, he had, the building was leased. It was fully, you know, everything was baked and ready to go. And then 1990 came along and Aetna said, no, we're not going to renew that lease. We're going to reduce the space. And so I, <laughs> Milt said, wait a minute, something's not right here. So I think he went up to Hartford and met with Aetna, and we had a rather protracted negotiation there. It was a, it was a challenge. I yeah, I, I definitely remember that because at the again at the time I was responsible for all leasing in in Fair Lakes, and so I I remember that very vividly. That that was a let's call it a sore thumb for probably about a year. But like everything, you get past it. We moved on, exactly. and you know I think. It was it was definitely what we call you know where where nobody wins but everyone everyone's is still alive so we all learned lessons from that deal definitely definitely a lot of lessons that lessons learned there and you know Taylor hit on earlier is you know one of our philosophies we really say you know when we look at a deal is that can we do this or should we do this and mm-hmm. there's a big difference you know yes. and we've learned that we really need to be spending our time. All we have is time and, and money and our, our one of my biggest things and, and Taylor too, we talk about it all the time is what's the best use of our cash and our time because mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's limited in general. We don't have an endless checkbook. No one does. So we really have to focus on what's, you know, what are the deals we can do versus the ones that we should do. And that's, that's a big part of, of what drives our decision-making as we, as we move forward. Cause you know, I'll joke with Taylor a little bit, you know, there's never a deal that he didn't think he could make or that he should make. And and so we we have we have some some fun discussions about those. And it's it's interesting. There's he probably could make every deal turn profit. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a deal that we just did that that was definitely, you know, the person it would they were digging the grave. And he said, wait a minute, that guy's not dead yet. And we ended up reviving the deal and and move forward on a resident. It was a residential deal, but he has a, a candy ability to, to gain people's uh, trust and uh, know how to how to put a deal together. So that again, in most cases, both people feel like they've 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 taken or, or something away from the deal. So Taylor and I have a unique experience that we had together that I'd like to at least share a little bit about. The morning of September 11th, 2001, we were sitting together in the basement of the Washington Hilton. We worked together for International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC's Mid-Atlantic ID Exchange here in Washington in that year. And we had met each other through, that's how we met at ICSC, because I was pretty active in getting involved, uh, financing property, et cetera, in retail. So I was on, Taylor was leading and he was the chair of the committee committee with uh, Nancy Catron, as I recall. And yeah. We were all sitting around the table and Bill, I forgot Bill's last name from ICSC, got a phone call from Bill New York. Taylor. Bill, Bill Taylor. Taylor. Yep. Got a phone call from New York City saying, 
a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. It, they didn't. They thought it was a private plane or something. No big deal. Yeah. And then a few minutes later, we left. And but uh, well, Bill left. Kent. Bill Kent came in. Bill Kent came in. He was late. He said, "I'm sorry, I'm late. I was sitting in the parking lot listening to the news." And you know, a real. You know, it was a real plane. And then Jessica Jess got a call, and her family Jess with Edens. You're going to have to cut this part because I can't remember Jess's name. Dang it. Her family were police officers and fire people in Newark, and she got a call. And that was when we said, we need to leave. Yes. That was, so, that was incredible. I get out of the building in the parking garage, and I turn on WTOP, and I hear that the Pentagon had been hit. So I, I immediately pulled out of the garage and went to Connecticut Avenue. And I had another meeting downtown and I said, no, I think I'm going to head north. I looked south and you could see the smoke above the Potomac River through down the corridor from Connecticut Avenue from the Pentagon that moment. Yeah. So I drove north and at that time, cell service was pretty spotty anyway, but we were, we were completely blacked out. And I assume that was the case for you for that first at least two hours. The entire city was shut down. Yeah, I'm getting... And and we went we went west. We went out 66 back to, to Perry Lakes. And all the emergency vehicles from Dallas Airport were, were coming up 66. It was it was an interesting time. But anyway, you know, ICSC was a great you and I had a lot of fun with ICSC. We did. And and it it was, you know, I was fortunate to get into it at an early age. You had you had, you were already well you were established. At ICSC, I learned a lot from your leadership there. But it was such a great organization because we were doing the programs, the the breakfast programs. We were doing the Mid Atlantic Idea Exchange, and each of these had educational programs to yes. go along with the network programs. And I think we brought the nineteen, the late nineteen uh, eighties were a big real estate boom time. A lot of people got into real estate in the 1980s. And then when 80, when 90, 91 hit, nobody came into real estate anymore. A lot of people, a lot of people left. And so I always felt like that felt like we were kind of part of the freshman class of real estate. But ICSC was very instrumental in education as it related to retail. No question. And you know, I think it, it was the best organization other than ULI, I think, as far as, you know, organizing group meetings, large sessions. And of course, the, the May meeting in Las Vegas was obviously a huge incentive to go. But the we had a good time with the ID exchange, and it was a great networking opportunity for us. It really was. So I recently interviewed Brian Folger of Folger Pratt for the, for the podcast. And he told me the story about uh, the origins of downtown Silver Spring and why he brought Milt in to, to help as a partner there. So talk a little bit about that story, if you, if you, either one of you, if you, if you can. And how well, well, you know, that was, that was our first, first of all, we need to get comfortable with a partner, right? And they had experience over there and we really hadn't ventured into, into Maryland at, much at the time. 
And so it really was, you know, as, as in most relationships, it was based on trust. And Bri was, was someone that, that, and Jim Todd also could definitely could trust. I mean, Jim Todd had a, had a big part in, in making that happen as well. But, you, you know, here, again, it's, you get attracted to people that do business the same way you do. And if you don't, if you don't do business the same way, then you shouldn't be partners. And they're a family-oriented business who, you know, sit there and you can have a, that, that you know that you can act trust and that you'll have a long-term relationship with and that you're not going to be at odds with. They're long-term holders of land, of properties. So were we. So we each had our own capabilities. They had a construction company. They had connections. We had good connections and relationships. And I, you know, that's part of, of a lot of what this business is all about. And I, I talk to, you know, when we have company meetings, I stress that more than anything is, is our ability, whether it's Taylor or I meeting with a supervisor or it's someone else meeting with a staff person, we, you are always out in the community as representative of the company and you need to do and do all, always be doing the right thing. And you're always building relationships, whether you realize it or not. And we were able to get that deal done, I think, because at the time the county executive was, was Doug Duncan. And Doug said, okay, you know, we'll send you an RFP. And Milt says, we don't do RFPs. And so <laughs> Milt said, hey, if you want us his, to his, no, 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 no. his exact line was, I don't do windows, I don't do underwear, and I don't do RFPs. <laughs> you like what we've done, and you want to work with us, give us six months. And we'll come up with plans. We'll spend our own money. And if you like what we've come up with, you'll do the deal with us. And if you don't, we'll, you know, head back over to Virginia because it, it, we had just finished Fairfax Corner and we're working on Washingtonian at the time, both lifestyle centers. And three other groups had already been in trying to do the uh, downtown Silver Spring project and had, had failed. So I think Doug appreciated Milt's candor and, and bravado and said, all right. Well, what actually won the day was I think the other developers built what they wanted to build. Right. And we went out into the community and said, and had group sessions with the community. That That's what Brian said. Yep. What do you guys want? Yep. And they said, we want a drug, I mean, we want a hardware store and we want a grocery store and we want mm -hmm. the basics. Right. And we said, okay. So we built what the community and that we built what the community wanted. So, you know, that there was a valuable lesson that we learned in that. And that is whenever we go in to do a project, we really need, to, instead of trying to dictate what the community needs, Find out what the community needs and then build to that need. And your project will be much more successful because you just, what's, what, you know, where, where is there, where is there a need? And it's, it really comes, comes down to that. So if you look at a lot of our projects, they are just filling voids that are in the markets. And Taylor's been, it's just been phenomenal. What he's been able to do is 
kind of bring one-offs, the first ones into a, into a market. And it really sets us, has been able to set us apart in, in certain circumstances, whether it's doing iFly out in Loudoun County or whether it's doing Top Golf. We did one in Loudoun County. We did one sure. in Prince George's County. We did Tanger. You know, Tanger was an example over in Prince George's County where we said, you know, we're not in the outlet business. So let's go find a great partner. Let's go find the best partner. I get again. it. And we went and we found and we found Tanger. And so, they again, so. Steve Tanger and that whole group have been nothing but just gems to deal with. And that is great. become one of their top units in the whole country, like top that's three. Great. And so again, it's that's an example of it just comes back to filling the need of the community. So many Absolutely. Prince Georgians, they're, they're a very wealthy county relative to around in the country. And so, you know, the Tanger said, hey, this is going to be a, a great spot. And so it, it was needed because a lot of Prince Georgians were, were going over the bridge to Virginia to do their shopping. And the county was like really excited to now see that a third of the park of the of the license plates that are in the Tanger parking lot in, in, in Prince George's County are from Virginia. So we, well, the, the, the flow has reversed back over. And so Prince George is really excited about that. Let me use that property as a levered point too. We could talk about a lot of your projects, but we can't avoid talking about perhaps the most visionary project I've ever seen in the Washington region. And uh, that is the National Harbor. I'd like to paint a little backdrop to that story, and you guys may have more details about it, but I remember in the late 1980s, there was a fellow by the name of Jim Lewis, who was a developer in Tyson's Corner, built the Tycon Tower. He had several Tycon developments, and then he assembled a site on the on the Potomac River, which I believe is pretty much the same site where National Harbor is today. And he wanted to build what was known as Port America, which was, I think, going to be the tallest office building in the entire region at the time. And he ran into obstacles from the FAA, I understand, about the air, the approach to National Airport was the, one of the major obstacles to that project getting underway, among other things, I believe. So it went down. <laughs> the project never happened. Tell, take it from there, and then how did Milt get get into the, into the project after that point. One thing that, that I'll throw in, and John, John's got a lot more history on this, but you know, Jim Lewis and, and, and others were visionaries on the property, but it's staying power, right? It's, it's true vision and you know, kind of molding, with, molding with, the, with the times, changing, being able to change, which Peterson Companies has always, you know, prided itself on and, and, and perseverance. And those are the those are the things that made National Harbor work was, was perseverance over time. But John's John's got his other stories on that. So you know as as you as you really think back, we were only able to do National Harbor because of the previous projects that we had finished, whether it was Fairfax Corner whether it was Rio Washingtonian, whether it was downtown Silver Spring, there were a lot of lessons learned. Yes. And for many years, we as a company, certain 
let's call it five or six of us, we would travel around the country to different projects. And we didn't go and look for the good. We looked at the good things, but we were there mostly to find out what went wrong, what didn't work, what could do, what, what could be better. Because I'm a big believer that you learn more from your mistakes than your than 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 your positives. Oh and yeah. So we learned a whole lot and we took that and implemented everything that we knew and incorporated it into let's call it the visionary downtown of National Harbor. Now that didn't the main reason National Harbor happened was because we were able to go to Prince George's County and says these are these other projects we've done. Do you want one of those? And here's what we're here's what we're proposing. But in order to to do this, we need some flexibility. And flexibility is the name of the game in the development community, as we all yes. know. But what has made National Harbor sustainable, as Taylor says, is knowing that we have the flexibility to build whatever we want, wherever we want however we want. All we had to do was basically make sure that the traffic flow was okay and that we built to building standards. We did not have to go in front of the public for any additional approvals. One day, a plot of land could be a hotel. The next day, it could be an office building. So as the market changed through the cycles, mm -hmm. sure, we were able to promise any different product type a quicker to market delivery. And that is really what sets us sets us apart is the, the flexibility that we had there. And so we built at the beginning, you know, Gaylord really is a, is a big part of that. Anchor. So yeah. they were because they brought the the people that right. were initially going to be there during the day and for the restaurants and the retail, because without without Gaylord there, you wouldn't get the restaurants and the retail. And then so it's really become a project of almost two different two different animals. It's it's for the locals pretty much, or more so on the weekend, and it's for convention during the week pretty much. How did Gaylord come to the site? Did did you have the site under control at the time that you got Gaylord, or was it the other way around? Did right. Gaylord so we bought it in two different transactions. One was from the RTC, but together it was it was incorporated along the waterfront, but also up the up the hill to now where MGM is. You know, and the mm -hmm. biggest benefactor over the years to Gaylord, we have made their bit their their business so much more successful because as we all know, we've all been are going to conventions. It's okay, what what can I do after the conventions? So what have what what have we built? We built a a, a outlet center, we're shopping, we've built top golf we built MGM, you know, so the, the, the salesmen at, and saleswomen at, at the Gaylord have a pretty good product to sell, also being there in Washington, because when everyone goes to a con convention, Gaylord always tells us that people stay an extra day, and they typically will bring their spouse with them on, on a convention to Gaylord more so than any other places. So, you know, as far as the visionary from the beginning, that was really all milk. The, the, the way that place lays out is really all about how quick you can get in and how quick you can get out. There's express lanes and it's, you can be on the bridge coming from Virginia 
And within three minutes, you can have parked your car and be down on the waterfront because it's right-hand turns, right-hand turns, sure. right-hand turns in the yep. parking lot, come to the center of project, walk down the spine, and, and there you are. So, the, it, But it was all uh, made possible because of what we learned from other projects. Understood. And Milk will tell you, and it's true, is that the spine of National Harbor was designed after the Los Ramblas over in Spain. On that note, let me let me share a story. Tom Maskey, your former colleague, I met through ICSC, and and right after this project was announced, I came to Tom and I said, "Tom, I'm I'm mentoring young people in ULI. Would you be willing to host me at the project and do a tour?" And he said, "Sure." So the first year that you had your trailer open there with the big model, the million dollar model that was built in National Harbor or so, something like that. All it was, was just that. The, the Gaylord Hotel, I think, was under construction at the time. So I go in there with five or six of uh, my ULI friends with Tom and we're having sandwiches and all of a sudden milk pops in, boom. He says, hi, John, how are you? So he sits down and he tells us the whole story at that moment, what his vision was with the model in front of us. It was it was a very special moment, not only for me, but for all the people that were with me at that, that time. But it was it was fantastic. And well, it was hear- a big undertaking. And where the really what happened there is, you know, at, back in uh, 19... What was it? No, was it 2007, mm-hmm. 2006? That's about we decided, right. okay, we're going to build National Harbor. We need a little more cash. So we said, all right, we to make sure that we've got enough cash. But what's the best way to do that? So we sold our portfolio here in Fair Lakes. And we sold it at, at the time. We didn't know that it was, but it was at the top of the market. We sold our office buildings here for over $300 a foot on average. Randall Howard, Randall Howard to be still sold for you, I understand. Absolutely. And, you know, part of it is we bought, we bought back a building and are going to redevelop it here in Fair Lakes. And we bought that building for, I think, $70 a foot. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that, you know, that was a pretty good deal. We sold it for 300 and bought it back for 70. Wow. Um, and we're going to redevelop it for for townhouses. That that money conversation is is really important for for young people to understand. It's reinvesting what you yes. what you've developed. So what we made in in the Fair Lakes portfolio, and then to roll that into a National Harbor or another project, is part of what the company does. Keep continue to reinvest and grow the portfolio from that perspective. It, it, going back to the people who lost National Harbor or what was Port America at the time. It took a long time to develop. And it I think we sold the portfolio in 2004 or five because National Harbor opened in seven. When National Harbor opened in 2007, we were on the cusp of another downturn. Sure. So, you know, those were tough times, just like the early 90s or the, the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. So, you can imagine, you know, what a challenge National Harbor was. You, know, you mentioned Tom Maskey. He had leases for all of the retail, the Victoria's Secrets, Pottery Barn, uh, Restoration Hardware, restaurants. And in 2008, those leases got torn up. Those guys went by the wayside because nobody was expanding 
them. The condo market, when the project started, was hot as a pistol. And I was you know, pre-sales. Right. Right. 2006, 2000, yep. you know, 2005, 2006, all of the condos uh, were, were sold. And you know, when, when it came time to close and 2007 hit. I think all we, we got were deposits. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we got at the closing table was deposits. We, had, we probably had pre, we probably pretty much pre-sold 90% of them, call it at $450 a foot. In the meantime, when we, since we had budgeted, construction costs have gone up 20%. Whew. So if you think about 20%, and 500 units at a cost of, you know, 300,000 a unit and it going up 20%, that's 60 bucks a foot. It's easy math. We lost money on those projects. We're being real honest. I mean, it's, it's a reality. And that, again, that's for those who are, sorry, younger in the crowd, you know, you don't, not every deal is a winner. Sometimes you're going to lose and we, we lost a good amount of money there on, on the condominium deals, a substantial amount, because, and part of the problem was, is we didn't get our permits in time. The county Ooh. really delayed us by a, at least a year and a half. And if we had been able to start a year and a half, we had finished a year and a half earlier, we'd have sold and delivered all of those units at the price as had, had been had been uh, contracted. So, so then the, the Tanger deal... And of course, the MGM deal certainly had to help as far as... Yeah, that got, that, that, those were helpful. Those were definitely helpful. Tanger's 50-50 partner, you know, MGM, that was, you know, that's just, that, that's where I really, for the first time, was kind of shoulder to shoulder with Milt doing that, doing, doing that deal. And it was so complicated. And all I can tell you is that when it went to a special session vote in the mid that, that was called... The, the the bill passed by one vote. This is the bill, this is the bill, the bill for, for vote uh, camp. for game for gaming for adding gaming in 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 the state of Maryland. Maryland. Passed by one vote. And MGM, I was just with their their manager last week, and that is the number one producing casino in their portfolio. Incredible from an EBITDA stamp. Isn't that something? point of view? It's and it's so. Anyways, they they're doing well, and it's amazing how how that has helped you know put us on the map. You know, the other thing that really is now put us on the map there is it's it's a little thing called the wheel there, but that's yes. all right. It's iconic. It um, is. And Milt was over in in Paris, and they had a wheel, and it's you know he goes, I want one of those. So so does London. London has right, too. and they came after, and so we contracted with this company out of Wichita, Kansas, and they built us a wheel, and it really has brought a whole different dynamic to the to the to the project. When you drive by, you know now, okay, it looks like fun. So it really has, uh, and and all the news stations have picked it up, and it's it's kind of free advertising, and so we're 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 enjoying. Some successes with it right now. That's Gaylord great. is not open right now. They're not going to open till June. So that's that's been that's, tough. That's, that's been that's hurt us a little bit there. But we're gonna we're rebounding. We're seeing the traffic come back. You know, and we're we we took the philosophy in this whole thing is let's not ask people to make some some decisions right now and some tumultuous and 
tough, toughest time. So sure. we probably more than other landlords worked with our tenants and said, okay, let's look to survive until we get to the other side of this, because it's really hard to one that if a mom and pop or anyone goes out of business, one, it's hard to, to, to find another tenant. And then you got to pay the expenses to retenant the space. So yep. our strategy from the beginning was let's try and, and cut deals that are percentage rent, whatever we can do to make them survive. And we're now going to realize that that was probably the best strategic decision to make. It hurt at the time. We lost, we lost significant money. But if you look at it on the five-year period, it, we're, we're, going to, we're going to come out ahead. So co-terminus with National Harbor, you continue to grow in Northern Virginia in land development and new product type data centers, for instance. Talk about that evolution along with your large land sale to Microsoft. You've been developing subdivisions in Loudoun County to meet the growing demand of tech growth. Is this continuous growth you foresee? So, you know, if you really look at the history of, of the company, we're as much a land speculator as we are a developer. There's a property that we sold out in in Loudoun County, right there next to the Leesburg Airport, that we bought 25 years ago, that we bought for 27 cents a foot. <laughs> okay, And so what we always kind of really sat back strategically and said, where is the wave of development? Right. Where is an interchange going to be built? Where is a road going to be built? And and we kind of really concentrated on that. I would say that there, there's very, very few pieces of property that we've ever developed that we didn't re-entitle before we developed it. So we bought it with one use, re-entitled it, and a lot of the value is created in the re-entitlement. Of course. And that is our specialty. And it's it's something that we can do as a private company that a lot of the institutional. So for, for many years, there were a lot of private companies, private developers, and they over the years have just kind of fallen by the wayside. We've managed to survive. And, and our, I think our competitive advantage is we're, we're not building to IRRs like a lot of these institutions. We can buy a piece of land re-entitle it, go through that whole process and, and be very comfortable as opposed to some of the institutions. They have to buy it entitled, ready to go and right. take all that risk out of there. We've always been in a, in a comfortable position to take some risk. And that comes through buying a piece of property, knowing whether or if it can be re-entitled. And Taylor's been a big part of, of, of that process over the last many years. So. Taylor's the one who's kind of really out, let's say, sniffing around the, the deals for larger tracts of land that are now different product types. You know, part of our strategic plan was, hey, let's go out and, and do X, Y, and Z. Data centers ended up being one of those. We're now into self-storage. And recent Taylor talk about, you know, the, the distribution. But that wasn't in our plan. That wasn't in our strategic plan three years ago, but it is soundly in our plan as we move forward. One thing we learned, you know, growing up is, you know, and, and John's spoken about it, we, you have to be flexible and you have to be looking forward. And, and you know, there's uh, a great person 
in the Peterson family. Her name's Aunt Sally. And Aunt Sally would always tell us we had to read the newspaper. The newspaper was, uh, was the greatest soap opera in the world. You had to know what was going on today and what's going to happen tomorrow. That was great insight when you're 16, 15 years old. What, what we try to do is, is look forward and, and what, is, what is coming down the pike. As John said, being a private company, we're able to be very flexible. We're able to maneuver and enter different industries or different genres of the real estate business. We um, started looking at, at industrial and warehouse probably five years ago. And through that, realized that the, the data centers were buying up all the land and understanding what was happening with the storage of data and why Loudoun County was so important. We started buying data center land. And as, as John said, we had this property near the Leesburg Airport, and we were able to do a deal with Microsoft for a 335-acre Microsoft data center campus out there. The industrial is was something that we thought was, was going to grow. Obviously, the pandemic has really increased, has, has exponentially increased the growth of both data centers and distribution warehouse. A lot of people will say the pandemic has accelerated real estate development by five years. You know, those things that were going to happen over the next five, 10 years sure. are happening right now in overnight in, in this year and two years. The down the downfall of retail was exponentially, you know, done through online shopping. But so we we are always looking for other avenues. So as you mentioned, data distribution warehouse. We recently read about the 275-acre distribution campus that we're doing down at Stafford. We've got some other sites that we'll be doing, warehouse also. We're still doing residential. We've got a lot of residential projects. Last year, we rezoned over 800 residential units. And this year, we're spending a lot of time doing the, the site work and turning those, those sites over. But you know, it's, it's just keeping an eye to the future and seeing what what changes are happening and and where the path of development is going. That's what we try to focus on. That's that's a daily that's a daily task. So if you look five to six years ago, we weren't in the residential market. We weren't building condos, we weren't building apartments, we weren't entitling townhouse land. And I would just it was just through a series of discussions internally we said, you know what? We need to get back in that business. Mm-hmm. And Taylor said 800. That was that year. Plus the previous year, we have 1,800 approved townhouse units and in, in singles in the just Northern Virginia alone. So that's, you know, that's where our route started was in, was in sure. the development business. So we got back real comfortable getting, getting back into that. And yeah. we're the beneficiaries now of, of just a market that is just leaps and bounds. It's, it's, it's the hard single to... Family, the single family home market maybe as strong as it's ever been right now, yeah. I think. Absolutely. Incredible. Absolutely. It, it's, it is, it's interesting you mentioned that is single family home, home purchasing, but what we're seeing nationally is single family home rental. Yes. And we don't have that in the DC market yet. But that's that's a definitely a you know a, a wave of the future that we will start seeing. And it's have you thought about doing build to rent? 
in, in single family homes? I mean, is that something I, you've never really been a home builder though. So no. that isn't really your game. You're more of the land guys teeing it up for the home builders. So no, so what we've done is in certain instances, we have basically partnered with a company called Integrity Homes. And so they're our partner. So we're in the home, we're in the home building business, but aren't in the home building business. We have come to an arrangement whereby we agree to a certain pro forma. And as the deal gets better, we get more money and so do they. We get a larger percentage, whatever, but it, everybody's happy. But Was it similar to the Dwight Shar milt peterson relationship back, say, 1970s and 80s? No, I, I don't think it's <laughs> not far from that. But there were, Milt will tell you that there were some properties that Dwight Shar was a trustee on and Dwight never knew he was a trustee on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Business was done a lot different. And, you know, it's funny to yep. hear Milt and everyone talk about what, what was done back then. But I will, I do need to share Milt's favorite deal. And it, it all comes down to trust. And it was, we talked about earlier, it's the PRC building. And he yes. gained a relationship with John Toops. And he and John, the lawyers were bickering and fighting and back and forth. And they went outside the room. And on a note card, they wrote five or six terms. And they walked back in. They basically gave it to, to, the, to the lawyers and said, here, here's the deal. Draw it up. And Milt then said, OK, I got a tenant. The lease isn't signed. Let me go get a contractor and let's go build this building. So Milt went to Jim Clark and said, hey, I need you to build this building for me. And he said, well, you got a lease? And he said, no. He said, do you have a loan? And he said, no, but we, we can work this out, can't we? So Jim Clark agreed to start on an office building. Without financing. Without financing. The lease was just about signed. He got enough confidence, but he started the construction of a building without a loan. And from that has grown grew the, a, a great, great relationship that he treasures more than all most any other relationship because that was all done on handshakes and trust. And that's what we try and, and continue to do here at the company is wherever we can try and look across the table and say, Hey, we got a deal. And, you know, we, and you want to do business with people you can trust because right now, if you don't, you know, it gets into all the legal battles. And, and so we've kind of really, try to stay away from that. But anyways, it's it's so, definitely uh, something that we treasure to be able to, even with tenants now, as much as possible, is trying to personalize real estate. And I think that's, again, where we separate ourselves from other people. We manage our own retail portfolio and mm -hmm. our own office. We don't do it for anybody else. We're doing one out at Virginia Gateway. But we have a different, when as we've gone through the struggles of the last year, the fact that we uh, manage our own properties has made a huge difference because we know which tenants can and can't afford to pay their rent. And we put together a program that said we went and sat down with all of our tenants and offered our assistance to put together a, an application for the PPP loan. And we even went to the point where I said, if you need to put it in an envelope and go mail it, 
go mail it for them because they're going to, they go get the money from the government before they come and put their hand out to us. And so again, it was just, we got have great relationships with our tenants. Most of them share their sales with us. So we know whether or not, again, they're able to pay rent, but it was, it was, it was all just because of relationships that we were able to get through this, this last year was really a big, a big part of it. So the land development business is a high risk reward business, as you talked about, with long lead times between transactions. Talk about how the Peterson company has mitigated those risks over the years. What lessons have you learned about development that you could share with your, that you do share with your employees? We're not doing major land assemblages like we used to. Bear Lakes was 1,400 acres. It was Couple thousand acres in Virginia Gateway, thing, things like that. You know, we're, we're taking smaller bites because the you don't do business the way you did uh, 20, 30 years ago. So that's a that's a mitigant. We're you know, as, as John said, we are still speculating on land, which not a lot of people are doing. But we have good relationships with jurisdictions, so we don't take. Lots of risk on rezoning or entitlement risk. We try to understand what the community needs before we go in and, and propose it, so that we don't get rejected on on rezoning. So, what else are we doing? We are continuing to partner with the experts in the field. You know, in data centers, we've partnered with Stack Infrastructure. On industrial, we're partnering with. Uh, Iron point, you know, on, on, from a from a financing standpoint. What else? Well, you know, I think the another difference is the sellers today are probably a little more educated uh, than the sellers of thirty years ago. They're willing to sell their land on an entitled basis, and and it not be and it be at a reasonable number. So, some of the deals, not all of them, are content contingent upon rezoning but there are is the occasion where there we still do where okay this is again our our advantage we know the properties so well that we go okay here here's a 10 15 percent deposit it's hard in in a week and all we want is clean title and we'll buy the property in 30 days not many people can do that and we're willing to do that and that's when you've got a, a, a buyer on the other side and they can sell in 30 days and, and our reputation really, you know, Milt says is it, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and, and a minute to ruin it. So, but don't ruin it. And it's amazing how that reputation precedes us because we pride ourselves in doing what we say we're going to do, even though it might be to our detriment. If we said that we're going to do it, we got to do it because if we don't, the next time we say we'll do it, they're going to say, you know, what happened last time? Your word, you know, mm-hmm. we can't, your word isn't good with us with it anymore. So we really, really, really value that, that reputation that uh, precedes us because it allows us to walk into jurisdictions and say, we'll do this, this, and this, if you'll do this, this, and this. And it's, and again, our, our entitlements in general run pretty smoothly. Because we've gone in and done our homework before and know what, again, the community wants or will allow, what's sure. concerning them. So sure. we've become a more educated purchaser as well. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a, a change in, in, the, in the environment out there on the buy and sell side. So the company's been built on 
behind the reputation of Milt and your family. Talk about how about the culture of the company and your dedication to the community. All that. It's just in our blood. Anything we do, you know, we are we are so grateful for all the opportunities that we've had. And Milt has just instilled in us that we have to give back. You know, we don't have a choice because there's needy people out there and we're fortunate enough. And he got that from his mother. So it goes, it goes way back. And we really push it here as, as part of our culture. We, we have a fund actually in the company that we've set aside $25,000 a year and employees can, can apply for that $1,000 at a time to go support the cause of, of, of their choice, as long as it has certain parameters. But we encourage our employees to go uh, out and, and volunteer and get involved in, in the community because it is, it is part of our culture. We, are, we try and, and, and treat each other like family members. You know, if you look at our core values, it started with Jim Todd started them years ago. It's, it's respect, it's entrepreneurship, it's customer satisfaction, it, you know, and it really does carry through. And we emphasize it over and over. And in the company meetings, it's always, again, people are always watching us. Sorry, because people want to knock off the guy that's on the top, right? And so you, everyone, when you're out there on a daily basis, again, whether you're with staff or whoever you are, you're a Peterson Company employee. and you know, a lot of it is expected of you and that, and when you say you're going to do something, you better do it because the last thing that Taylor or I want to hear is, you know, someone making a commitment and then, and then we're not honoring it. That's definitely part of our culture. If someone has an issue with a family member, you know, that com- family comes first. We'll, we'll bend over backwards to to help someone out of whatever situation they have. Our average, we have, I think the number is we have 60% of or 70 60 or 70% of our people have been with us 10 years or more. That's great. And we've had we have some that have been here 42 years. Longevity so, here yeah. is amazing. Longevity here, definitely. There are even there are even a few, probably three or four, that have left and come back. We call them retreads. Yeah, and you're one of them, Taylor. Yep. <laughs> talk about we didn't We're talk about it come back so yeah talk about that evolution uh we didn't get into that earlier but i would like to find out why did you leave the peterson companies and why did you come back so talk about that a little bit the uh, here at the peterson Companies, we had a great great guy running development for retail tom maskey you know tom was young and uh vibrant and, and doing great things, but there was definitely a glass ceiling for me. I had an opportunity to go to Regency Centers. It's a publicly traded company doing retail. And it's it, it was a, a fantastic opportunity. We developed 11 shopping centers in eight years in the Mid-Atlantic region. It was great to have that experience because I learned an entirely different way to do retail development, a public way, as opposed to a private way. Right. And 2008, Milk called and said, you know, retail's, retail's hurting. You know, we need you to come home. We had, that, was, that was when, you know, the downturn was, was starting. So Had Tom left at that point? And, and Tom was uh, in the process of retiring. Yeah, right. Right. 
So, so that was, that was what brought me back. And I think that had I not had the time away, had I not had the other experience, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I think that we brought a lot of, you know, we brought some systems that a public company does back with that. And you do have to have some, some systems in place, checks and balances. And that's what a public company has probably too many of them, but a private company needs to make sure that they check and balance also. So those were, those were great learning experiences. The Regency just did neighborhood grocery anchored shopping center. Right, right. And I was always challenged with Regency because I'd say, well, we can put an office building in here too. We can do apartments over the retail. No, 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 no. It's just neighborhood grocery anchored shops. And so it was, it was great to have the opportunity to come back because it gave me a wider canvas to work on with all different product property types. Well, I, you know, when Taylor left, his emphasis was more on leasing with, let's just say, limited development experience. What he learned while he was at Regency was how to the, the whole spectrum. Right. He soup to nuts. He could right. go buy the property, entitle it, design it, right, market it, lease it, finance it, and turn it over to property management. Mm-hmm. And when he was here, he didn't have all those capabilities. So right. you know, we were the beneficiaries of. Regency, my region, my Regency MBA, his Regency MBA. <laughs> so seriously, it was it was great. To, it was it was amazing to see the growth that he had when he went. The difference. How many years was it? Five years, eight years, eight years. In eight years, his skill sets when he left and when he came back, he, it was just amazing. And that's what we were really confident, and he could come back and do do great things. Well, I learned firsthand about it because three years ago, he and I sat down and put together a development presentation called the Development Process for our Year Urban Land Institute mentor mentorship program and made a presentation in front of, I don't know, 30, 20, 30 young people and mostly Taylor's work. It was really well done. He took it off our wall. I know. Well, he told me it was your, it was your development. It was your process. So... <laughs> he, he stole your process so i guess no well you know we again a, a big part of what has really helped us is, is we we did put together a strategic plan two years ago and we hadn't really had one and you know that was one of the things when i got on board was that you know milta as milta's moving on the employees and everyone wanted to know that mm-hmm. you know there was a guiding force that was going to propel you know the company forward, and that's I think that strategic plan gave a lot of the employees a comfort that okay we were we were we had the right people, we had a plan and we had a direction, and all we needed to do was keep feeding that pipeline, and you know as as in our last company meeting we have in the last year we have bought. 280 acres. We've, anyways, it was, we have a lot in our pipeline to keep us busy. That's Almost great. over probably 10 million square feet of industrial. And it's, and wow. so it's the, and again, we're doing things that we weren't on our strategic plan. You know, actually, the first thing we said we we're going to get into is self storage. And now, and we've opened a self storage one, one a year for the last four years. 
and we've got two more on the blocks. And we said, we're going to get into data centers when we're moving forward. We said, we're going to get into industrial, we're moving forward with that. So as we announce that and introduce it to our strategic plan, we have to you know, follow that so that the employees, again, get the comfort level that sure. senior leadership is delivering on, on the direction of the company. So we gave everyone in the company a little compass, said, here, this is our guiding force. And it's it's been amazing. I think how again I've got North some Star. feedback from the company on on how how that really has has given them some comfort as we move forward. But you know there were things on there in the strategic plan is thou shalt not, and that and one of those was <laughs> get into the hotel business. So I don't think you'll see us getting into the hotel business anytime soon. So anyone else out there listening, if if you have a hotel, we're not interested. Sorry. <laughs> so we'll buy, it, we'll buy it and turn it into something different. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, bring them. I guess we'll, we'll yeah, figure out something we'll else to do. Right? You have you have plenty at National Harbor already. So so over your careers, what have been the most surprising events or transactions you've participated in? Each one of you, take a stab at that one if you would, please. Biggest surprising. surprise. Yeah, you know, what's the most surprising well, thing that ever happened to you? It was, it was, it was just the whole process to get MGM done was so complicated because it ran from. It was almost like you were running for an election because you had to convince the voters to go vote on the election day and then you had to go convince the elected officials and then because then to apply for the license and then you had to get the license and negotiate the license and then you had to go find MGM and again that's another example is we had because of where the process was we had people knocking down our doors because we had a license in our hand, okay? <laughs> and it was a pretty sought after license. And we had the pick of the litter basically, and we chose MGM and it was the right decision. They're, they're a great company, they do great things, like they have really good leadership and they they delivered exactly what they said they were gonna do. And so it was, it was, a, it was a pleasure doing business with them. So I'm not, no, it's the biggest surprise, but I guess maybe I was, I was surprised by how complicated it, it ended up being. A lot more than, it, it's, it's hard to imagine how complicated it was. And I was, it was, the, the best part about it is I was doing it shoulder to shoulder with Mill. I have pictures of the, you know, we, we would have the whiteboard and we'd write down the notes and we were negotiating and they were in the other room and it was, it was really exciting. So it was, it was probably the most, definitely the most exciting because it all happened at, to get through the process took a long time, but to negotiate the deal with MGM, we did that in 30 days. It was pretty exciting. That's great. Taylor? Surprising? Give me an example of what you're talking about. Well, something that you were working on or thinking about or project that all of a sudden, just something came out of left field. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> What happened here? It could be good or bad, either way. That just completely surprised you. Well, you know, it, it's one thing that we've we've done 
a lot is it brought new types of concepts to the area. And uh, Top Golf, hearing about Top Golf, we went and visited Top Golf, understanding what they were. That company really surprised me. It, it was so much bigger than I ever anticipated it to be. It was it was funny in the zoning in the zoning hearing in Loudoun County. It was the first one in the market. And Barry said, well, what do we need a driving range for? We've got a driving range right up the street. You don't need a driving range. No, this isn't a driving range. That was, that was, that was kind of funny to, to see it. And, and now, you know, a couple of years after that, to see the excitement about how everybody wants one. I think the, the Microsoft deal was, was unique because it was very uh, confidential. And we were able to... How did you find them? What what happened there? I mean, how did that happen? Uh, actually, it's a, a relationship that Bill Smith and John had from the office days, broker named Rob Factoro from CB. Okay, I know Rob, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Rob, you know, about six years ago, saw the writing on the wall with, with office and started a group within CBRE to do data science. So because he had a relationship with the Peterson companies and I was doing development, he, you know, came over and said, hey, you know, want to kind of educate you on data centers. This is what's going on. That was that was the that was where we got a lot of our early knowledge. He represented Microsoft. He couldn't tell us that he represented Microsoft. He obviously knew of, of our land holdings. And we talked about and were able to put the deal together. And, and this was one, you know, John goes back to trust. Because of our relationship with Rob, he said, trust me. You'll be you'll be fine. You'll you you, you yeah. want you know, this is not a uh, a fly by the seat of their pants. This is not a fly by night. This is a deal you'll want to do. So we trusted him, and for nine months we didn't know who the tenant really. Was. Nine months. How far down on the deal? I mean, how far along had you negotiated before you knew who it was? I mean, what? Oh, we, had, we it was done. I mean, we we didn't. <laughs> You heard the closing table when you learned, or <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, in all honesty, the the the, the puppet company, the, the the straw company that they put in, we had done some research on them and knew that they had gotten acquired by Microsoft. So, oh, okay, we had a, we had a pretty good idea, but it was it was completely quiet, right up to yeah, close to close to closing, not not quite, but that was that was that was really exciting. That was a lot of fun as well working with them. And the, the speed at which they did things, that was unique as well. So the fun thing about being in the technology real estate world is they measure time on, on watches, not on calendars, which it's is the like, way we like to move. So. A lot different. It's not a, a deal, but it was a deal that led to many other deals. And that was the first deal that we did with, with the government at Tyson's McLean. We had, we were in discussions with the tenant to take the whole building. And they said, we we only wanted to do 10 years and they only take 75% of the building. And it's a 460,000 foot building. And at the time we were in, it's back to this trust thing. It, we were in negotiations also with this one guy from the government. And so, I told, went back to the tenant and said, you need to take the whole building and it needs for 15 years and it needs to be X deal. And, he, and I, it was 50, I had quoted 20% higher or something. 
And I said, because we were working with this other group. Then they said, you know what? And the guy flew out from California because he he had to hear it from me because he didn't. He just said he had to hear it. Anyway, long story short is we looked government guy without a lease in the eye and said, we will move forward and spend millions of dollars if you tell me that you'll use your best efforts to go and try and get the money appropriated to build this building. Wow. And from that day, we now have 3 million square feet with federal government it's 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 a combination of tyson's mclean and we're starting our fifth building out at out at dulles discovery so that was all built on trust and relationships and we've continued to provide and and give them great service and give them no reason to to doubt anything we did so it's do you have long-term gsa leases then on all these buildings yes we do yeah so that's that's been a quietly we've built that that portfolio. Yeah, I know. I've heard. So we're that's and again that that that's Bill Smith being yeah. the the ultimate. Now, I I I don't know of a person that you could sit there and say you, you you trust anymore. I know I keep using the word trust, but it's it's so valuable in this in this industry because he has the trust of the federal government to do what he's what we're going to say we're going to do. And that's uh, great. So we're really proud of, of that portfolio that we've built over the last, gosh, it's probably now 15 years, maybe 17, 15, 17 years. How uh, did you finance those buildings just out of curiosity? With their credit, pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if you did. Did Bostonia. you do Yeah, ETL. we worked through a group through Bostonia. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. uh, bond CTLs. deals. And, yep. You, know, you did CTLs. Yeah. Yeah. I was in that business for a while. So, so. What advice would either one of you give your 25-year-old selves today? So either one of you want to start with that out of curiosity. You know, I would say, and luckily this, again, this was Jim Todd, told, pushed me really hard to get involved in the industry. And in the, in the commercial industry, it was now. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would say work hard. Do whatever you need to do and start building your relationships immediately because the bigger your Rolodex, the more success that you're going to have because it's all about this industry is all about who you know and it's getting out and networking. And I will say for, for many years, you know, part of my job was was to get to know the brokers. You know, and brokers they like to play golf, so you know, yes, I know I do. Go play golf with them, but it's amazing. I and I said this to my father, and and he thought it was just an excuse to go golfing. But when you go play golf with a person, you learn a lot about five hours their demeanor. <laughs> you learn whether they're fair, they're honest, they got a temper, they whatever. You, I was always watching and. You could, and you use that when you were maybe across the table, or but you became a friend with them. And people like to do business with people that they know. And so in NAOP, we have this saying NAOP people do business with other people in NAOP. And so I would say build your relationships as quickly and as 
as broadly as you can, uh, especially then the broadness is, is really important because if it's too specified, you're not as valuable to, let's say, a development company. If we're out there hiring someone, we'd much rather have someone who has a, let's say, a medium level understanding of five different things as opposed to a really high level focus on, on one individual aspect of the business. Well, in your business as a developer, generalism is the key. You got to know a lot of, a, a little about a lot of things instead of just being deep on just one thing. Well, and I would, I would, and it's a great program because, and it was designed as a generalist to go get your, get your master's at George Mason. It gives you a little bit of everything. And if you can walk into a development company with a master's in, in real estate out of, out of George Mason, that I agree. That would be, and you can take, you can take night classes. So that's why I'm saying, do whatever you need to do to make it happen. Yep. If you got to go to night classes to get, to get a, a master's in real estate from Mason, you know, you're going to be, you're going to go to the top of the pile when, when you're out at a, at a job interview. Yeah, education, education really is key. What would I have told myself that at 25? Be as diverse as possible. Make sure you you try a lot of different aspects. And I was I was lucky to be able to do that. I never would have thought that that was the way I would have ended up. And you know, I, I remember you know early in my career, commercial management who was doing the management of our retail centers offered me a job. And, you know, I was, I was cranking out. I think I was getting like seventeen, nineteen thousand dollars $19,000 a year working for Peterson companies. These guys, these guys are going to give me $40,000 a year. I was going to be making big head. And I went and talked to Skip Costin. And I said, look, this is, you know, what do you think? And he goes, well, if you want to be a property manager, then I think you should do it. But if you choose that, if you choose that channel, you will stay in that channel. And that's a great channel, but understand you'll stay in that channel. Or you can stay doing what you're doing and not making any money, but you are getting a much more diverse background. You're getting a much more well-rounded development opportunity. So Mm -hmm. if you want to ultimately be a developer, then I'd stay where you are. And he had no, he had, you know, he had no dog in the fight. He was he was doing that for me, and uh, that was you know that was really good instrumental knowledge. That's great advice at twenty five years old. So I'd probably instill that in somebody else. Or you know, if, if Skip hadn't told me at twenty five, I would have had to tell myself because that. that was the, <laughs> that was the right answer for being able to achieve what what I've been able to achieve. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to come over for dinner anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) So I have a a final question that I ask to every one of my guests. And it's usually a pretty popular one. Some people are stumped by it, but I'll just put it out there. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? So I'll let each one of you answer that one. And it would say, and it would be, and its purpose would be what? Well, it's a message that you have. You could, you could say whatever you want to say. It's your, it's your message has your name on it on the Capitol Beltway or someplace where millions of people would see it. Work hard, 
make some money and give back to your community. Simple yeah. enough. Yeah. Mine was so, going to be, be a part of your community. And that, that works in so many different ways. And, and so, and that's kind of just been the way we've lived is trying to be a part of whatever community we're in at the time. You know, and, and Taylor and I are, are now really involved with Joe Gibbs Youth Tomorrow. Oh, and that's great. It's just amazing what, you know, the, and the reason I say that is because I, this is what we tell, I've told my kids is get involved. You will be so surprised how much you want to continue to be involved because the feeling that you give by helping others mm-hmm. is irreplaceable. Money cannot buy it. So go out and help others who, who need it. It's, it's what makes the world go round. And it's such a big part of, again, our culture. And Taylor and I, it was, it's been drummed into us from Milt and from the beginning. And he's so right in, in that, again, what we're doing out at Youth for Tomorrow is just amazing to see. And we're, I, I, we've been doing it for, for many, many, many years. And again, that's, that's one of you know, the proudest things I can say is that I've, I've been involved with, with Joe Gibbs. You know, youth program. That's great. Hey, John, I want to I want to yeah. go back. You know, you, you asked kind of what were some of the, you know, instrumental or 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 lightning light going off moments. And you know, we give a lot of credit to Milton because he's an incredible man. I remember in high school, you know, that he would go around and his he was building Burke Center. He was creating. Burke Center creating Franklin Farm, that 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 concept of, of you know community. And I remember one night going to it, it wasn't a public hearing, it was actually a bit that he was putting on around the state. Where have the steeples gone? He's not making money off of this. He is saying, where are our communities? Where are our churches? Where have the steeples gone? And it was, I mean, it meant a lot of stuff to a lot of different people. I think, you know, to the, to the religious community, it meant, where are the steeples? Where have they gone? To you know, others, it meant, where is the center point of our community? Where are we, where are we working together? But that, that has always stuck with me. And it's kind of been a, a, a cornerstone of how I've tried to live my life and, and how we try to uh, try to live the life here at, at, at the Peterson company. And that's, it, it's funny that we both came up with community on our, on our billboard because, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, we didn't just, plan that. We didn't plan that. <laughs> <laughs> and I had mine before he said community. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. The, the Peterson company is quite a legacy. And it's obviously going to continue on for many, many years to come and with, with your leadership, John and Taylor. So thank you very much for your time Thanks. today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. Thanks for doing this, John. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. And yep. uh, it's great that you're able to get this to you know, younger audiences to hear how, how people have done it. I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast that you, you've That's done. Great. So, All right. Good work. Take care. So we just listened to 
Taylor Chess and John Peterson about their life working at the Peterson Company and their life before that, growing up under the auspices of Milt Peterson and his magic in development around this region. So as I do each episode, now I'm transitioning to the postscript with my new colleague, Colin Madden, who will be joining me to provide his thoughts and commentary to this episode. Colin, welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks for this uh, wonderful podcast. I thought this was an incredibly insightful and entertaining listen, and it was just two hours of great stories, impressive accomplishments, and and it really let me kind of dive deep into the way some of these successful real estate workers in the industry can think and think through processes, and think through shifts in the industry, and yeah. Through all that, I kind of wanted to dive into some of their thinking processes, mental frameworks, and how they make decisions and stuff like that. But yeah, I thought I thought it was fantastic. And I guess starting backwards in my notes, one of your one of your last questions was in regards to advice to a 25-year-old. I think Taylor was the one who said, just be as diverse as possible. John jumped in and said, get a master's in real estate from George Mason. You know, try to try to spread your experience wide and broad and not get sucked into becoming a specialist too early. So I know this was advice to a 25-year-old. I kind of wanted to get your opinion on the generalist versus the specialist kind of career strategy. And then at what point do you think you need to start leaning more so into specialization as you advance in your career? Or should you always just broadly have this, you know, this mile wide inch to foot deep experience in the industry or, or both, I guess? I think it's a, it's a blend, honestly, Colin. I think you need to learn individual disciplines as much as you can, but the perspective you take in learning those disciplines is the key. So mm-hmm. uh, what they're suggesting is learning a broad range of, of our industry as much as you can. So real estate has so many different disciplines applied to it. I look at like three legs of a stool. There's the financial economic numbers piece of the business. There's the communication piece, which is sales, marketing, presentation. And then there's the art of the business, Mm -hmm. which is the physical improvements, which sets it apart from other businesses in that it's, you know, other financial trades are, do not have the three-dimensional element to it. So each of those things, you can go down the rabbit hole pretty deep, focused, and understand those things. Right. But a developer requires, it to be developer property, you need to understand, have basic understanding of a lot of different disciplines mm-hmm. to be successful. And so I think that's what he was aiming to, to apply because their company is a development firm. Mm-hmm. And they look at a lot of different types of real estate, but the process of development is pretty pretty similar regardless of what you're developing. Mm-hmm. So they've come up to refine the, the process, but their the expertise is is broad. Right. So to get a deal to to find a site takes a different discipline than to build a project, mm-hmm. which takes a different discipline than leasing it. So all these disciplines you have to learn enough to manage people that do the specific things right. really, really well. 
So okay. that's why you have a team because everyone brings their strengths to the table. Yeah. It's yeah. the, it's the multidisciplinary approach. That's right. Which I try to try to steer my career towards. Well, le- leaders have to have that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they wouldn't understand what people are doing. Yeah. You have and to have I, at least a high level understanding of what, what everyone that works for you does. Right. Exactly. Okay. And, and I think that's, you also need that high level understanding to see what's coming next. Taylor talked about John's and Sally teaching them to read the newspaper as, as being the, the newspaper was the greatest soap opera out there. And he said that instilled to them like the ability to, to know what's coming around the corner, what's going on in the industry. And I, I find that maybe this, this mindset was what helped John and Taylor really you know, stay at the, at the cutting edge of the industry, at the trends in the industry. And I think their ability to, to get into data centers and industrial five years ago, or at least start thinking about it five years ago, is kind of, you know, a testament to that, that framework. To some extent, it passes down from earlier generation of Milt, who yeah. is one of the classic visionary developers in the region. And so Milt would be ahead of everything. His story, the story, the funny, one of the funniest stories that John shared in the book was about taking used textbooks in college (laughs) and and reselling them for a profit Mm -hmm. (laughs) that were marked up. The university almost suspended him because they didn't want. So he he found the secret Mm -hmm. that that helped, you know, future Steve. But the whole idea was, not necessarily just to make money. He wanted to help other people. And that right. was always his framework of things. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that was, thought was, was brilliant. <laughs> and it's just an insight into what, you know, what he brings to, and he did to that anything. with real estate. With real estate, he would look at a property that, you know, a, a wooded forest and see it, a planned use, to, a planned PUD. Mm-hmm. You know, Fair Lakes was just a, you know, a bunch of woods and it didn't have a major road system even. And they talked about the Fairfax Government Parkway, which ended up building all the way from Woodbridge all the way up to Loudoun, you know, the Loudoun Porter. Right. They envisioned that, he and Till Hazel. So is it, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, to me, it's the brilliance of a very few people in our industry. Mm-hmm. So that's the looking around the corner, looking over the horizon type of thought process. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they were referring to. Right. Yeah. And as you know, I'm, I'm really, really into like the Charlie Munger philosophy and mental model frameworks and wanted to discuss one that I thought popped up, which was the mental model of inversion. And for the listeners who aren't aware of this, it's, it's basically like flipping a problem upside down and asking kind of the, the questions backwards. Yes. So John, John talked about traveling around the country, looking at successful projects that they, most of the time they weren't even involved with. They just knew of a successful project that maybe they could try out in this region. And to me, that wasn't very unique. I think a lot of, a lot of teams do that. A lot of people do the tours of successful projects, but I think when most people tour projects, they're, they're seeing what works. Like they did this with the building, they did this with the retail, they did this with parking, but John specifically said they tour these projects to see what doesn't work, which I thought was, you know, an inverted way of thinking of thinking of a, a problem like that. So going into a, a tour and just saying, okay, this doesn't work. Let's not do this. I, th- I think maybe one of the, the secret sauce 
experiences to, to pulling off a very successful project because I think it's easy to replicate what works. It's harder to not replicate what doesn't work. And I think that's because most people aren't paying attention to that. So I, I just found that interesting. I, I wanted to get your take on, on that. You know, the quickest way to success, I think, is to avoid mistakes other people have made. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about lessons learned, when you ask that question of somebody, normally they say, well, I made that mistake. I won't do that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a major lesson to me. Normally they don't say, gosh, I did a great job on that one. I'm going to keep doing that. Normally mm-hmm. it's a mistake or a problem that they overcame or they learned from and they repeat, did not repeat. Right. And so therefore, I think you can measure success more on avoiding mistakes than actually hitting lucky things. And other people, the other thing, the, the concept of luck People see it, things, you know, success sometimes happens just out of left field. Mm-hmm. They didn't plan. Right. And sometimes their success happens just out of circumstance and never was planned. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd be remiss not to bring this up, but I'm actually reading uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Dukes. I don't know if you've yes, ever read it. but That's a great book. It's, it's exactly that. She, she looks at life like uh, she's a professional poker player. She, she looks at life like poker where, you know, there's an element of skill, element of luck, element of unknowns, but those who, you know, play the game and pay attention to what, what worked and what didn't, and then kind of weighing it with luck and skill and learning from that are those who are the most successful. So hearing a lot of the stories John and Taylor talked about, they, they frequently brought up what didn't work more so than what worked. And I think that that focus on, how to, how to do better, how to improve, how to not make the same mistake twice is, is kind of the thinking that Andy Dukes is talking about. And I thought it was very coincidental that I'm reading this book and heard this podcast at the same time, because I, I saw so many of the themes of that book, or I heard so many of the themes of that book while listening to this podcast. Another aspect of inversion that I like to think about is, is reverse engineering. Mm-hmm. So you see this ideal situation that you'd like to achieve in your mind and you say, so what tactics strategies should I have to achieve that ultimate goal? Yeah. And so you come back from that goal. So what will, what should have had, what has to happen for this to, for these things to happen? So you, you mm-hmm. kind of reverse the decision tree in your mind. So in essence, you have this wide branch tree and you're, you're coming back to the, to, the, to the core, to the trunk. Mm-hmm. So all these branches are out there. So you go down each branch towards the trunk and, you know, undo the decisions you had to make to right. get there. It's an interesting yeah. thought process. Yeah. And I think the people call it the postmortem in investing. Of It's, it's almost a eulogy for the deal, what, what they did, what was successful, what worked, what didn't. And I think that's you know, extremely important in investing. And it seems like they have a good grasp on the ability not to, to fool themselves on what worked and what didn't. So I, I have a career counseling and I, I'm going to throw a little pitch in for that right now, curriculum that I do. And the second part of it is coming up with a three-year plan. And what mm-hmm. I ask my clients to do is to think about what you'd let, where you'd like to be three years from now. And then what steps is it going to take to get there? So what's the decision tree every six months? What decisions are you going to make from now until six months from now? And then, you know, kind of 
in your mind, put it forward, and mm -hmm. then think backwards. So two thought processes, think forwards first, and then think backwards, and see how they <clears throat> cross over. It, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes a little consideration, but it's an interesting way to think about it. Right. So for the listeners, if anybody's interested, just write me at john at coenterprises.com, and I'd be happy to share with you uh, the thought process and see if you might be interested in doing it. So. Mm. I wanted to get into Milt Peterson. I, I mean, it's so evident throughout the podcast how, how highly John and Taylor regard him. And to me, whenever someone as successful and talented as John and Taylor holds someone else to high esteem, it really truly means that this guy must be great. So I know you're, you know, you, you're, you're very fond of Milt and you're very impressed with him. You've, You've, you've talked a lot about him in, in high regard. And I just wanted to kind of throw, throw it to you to, you know, discuss your thoughts on Mill, you know, his, his vision, his entrepreneurialness, just, you know, hear, hear your thoughts on Mill. Well, there was a lot shared about that in the podcast, but mm -hmm. let me just say personally about the man. And I may have said this, he's the best salesperson I have ever met in my life. He could make, and as I said, I said, I put a quote out this week about that Maya Angelou said, it's not what you did. It's not what you, you know, what you are. It's how you make other, other people feel. Mm -hmm. Milt Peterson, when you met, meet him, his attention is riveted on you when you see him physically. Mm -hmm. And he makes you feel so good when you're with him. And that's a, that's an art. He does, you know, he, and you can see why people love the guy. I mean, he just has this aura and magic about him. Personally. Mm -hmm. Now, he has his foibles. And he, uh, I told a story about seeing, well, maybe I wasn't shared in the podcast, but I saw him in Las Vegas at the ICSC convention mm -hmm. at the craps table with a with dice <laughs> in his hand and huge months of chips in front of him. <laughs> he was having the time of his life. Okay. And that was 25 years ago or so. And it doesn't surprise me what John said about the MGM deal that mm -hmm. they struck. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a huge gamble as well. I mean, one vote the state of Maryland gave them or gave anybody yeah. for the casino, another casino, one vote. They could have gone either way. Right. So luck played in there. Mm -hmm. But Milt may be one of the luckiest people I've ever met mm -hmm. in many ways. But he yeah. made his luck because of vision, courage, and his amazing personality. Yeah. That's all I'll say. The guy is just, he's one, in a, he's one in a billion. He's not just one in a million. He's an mm -hmm. amazing human being. Yeah. And he gives back relentlessly to community. He cares genuinely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to. You know, luck, luck, luck will be in everything, but you have to at least be at the table to have luck come your way. So it's definitely a balance of knowing your skill set, but also being able to position yourself to receive luck. And it sounds like they, they've done that quite frequently. Yeah, go, going back to the community and, and more broadly trust, uh, I definitely wanted to hit this because John, throughout the entire podcast, Throughout many stories and experiences, always there's always like a a theme of trust interwoven through all of his his discussions, and I thought it was it was great to hear that and great to 
to know how important trust is to him. And it sounded like he regarded trust as the number one, you know, characteristic of, of his career, of his the core career. value. It's a yeah. core value of their company, you know, the reputation. I mean, Gary Rappaport, every, almost every speaker I've had said that reputation is, is the key element mm-hmm. and reputation is trust. You know, if his word is their bond. I mean, Every Peterson employee is embedded with that thought process, as is every Rappaport employee. Mm-hmm. If they say they're going to do something, they better do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. In regards to the, the deal when Jim Clark's commenced construction with that alone secured, do you think gone are the ways of that ever occurring again? And I know that that's such a deeply ingrained relationship of trust for someone to do that, but do you think that's still possible? I think it's possible, Yes. Mm-hmm. And I believe that people believe in each other enough to do that. Mm-hmm. You could ask, you know, even Jay Epstein and Fred Klein, are real estate attorneys, whose mm-hmm. whose whole living is tied up to to document relationships just in case something happens. Mm-hmm. But they'll tell you that their client Ray Ritchie, when he says he's going to do something, he doesn't need a legal document, right? To you know, for you to believe that he will do it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, I think, for Milt Peterson, Gary Rappaport, Tom Bazzuto. I'll go down the list. When right. they look at you in the eye and say, it's going to get done, it'll get done. Right. It may not be done exactly the way you want it for whatever circumstances that occur, but it'll get accomplished. And in most cases, you're going to be more than satisfied with what gets done. So that's probably one of the whole reasons I'm doing this, this podcast is to share those experiences and the thought processes of other people so that young people understand it and can learn from it. Yeah. But integrity is, you know, is job one. Key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's good to hear. And when, when someone like John repeats it so often, you should pay attention. I would say it's, it's so, it's so evident that it's, integral to any relationship, integral to any successful business or career. So um, one one lesson I'll say to that is when you're when someone asks you to do something and you're not sure you're going to be able to accomplish it, make sure that you tell them, I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. that I can deliver exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, not necessarily to hedge, but don't don't ever, you know, Win something if you don't think you're going to be able to accomplish it. That's all. I've learned that over my my career. I've I've said yes to something that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have, but yeah, it, it comes back to learning learning from your mistakes and exactly. Yeah, well, that, that's most of the questions I wanted to hit. I wanted to offer you a chance to discuss anything you heard in the podcast that you wanted to to repeat and reiterate if you wanted to, but. Well, yes, I will say that it is unique to have two people that are, have been together off and on. I mean, Taylor and John broke off for about eight years when Taylor left and went to Regency centers, mm-hmm. but they grew up to, together. I mean, they known each other since they were, you know, Taylor said he was seven years old when he moved right. in the neighborhood. And because of his family situation, Milt and his, his wife were, in essence, Taylor's father. Mm-hmm. So Taylor grew up like a brother with John. And here they are some 
what, 40 some years later and they're working together still. And so they're like brothers. It's like, a, it's a unique, unique relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely yeah. unique. I've, I've never heard of real. I've never heard of anyone working an entire career with one of their friends from middle childhood, school. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, so that's it's, the title of this episode is childhood pals to, to, to real estate leaders, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they know so much about each other, which I'm sure helps in their, in their decision-making mm -hmm. and, and looking at things and then living you know, under the roof of Milt Peterson and hearing it, seeing and hearing his exploits and learning the lessons from a, from a guy like him, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, invaluable. it's pretty special, right? It's pretty damn special. <laughs> so, and as I asked that question, I said, what's it like to grow up with <laughs> Milt Peterson's son? I just, I just, you know, how exciting would that be to come down every morning to see him there? I mean, I would just be, gives me goosebumps to think about it. You know, mm -hmm. the guy's just incredible. So anyway, I can't, I can't idolize too much more here. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have him for the podcast, but you know, these guys were great. Yeah. Fantastic. It was awesome. So, mm -hmm. So thank you for your commentary, Colin, and your good questions. I appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for listening. And I hope you really enjoy this episode. And please share it with any of your friends because anybody in the industry, I think, is going to want to hear this one. This was very, very special. Okay, thank you very much. Have a, thank you. Have a great one. We'll talk in uh, the next uh, two weeks.